0: Well then, with a view to the help of God, let's uh, turn to that passage that we read there in the Gospel according to John, and chapter 11. And uh, returning to our main text really, which is in verse 4, John 11, verse 4, where Jesus sends the message back. To our concern, Martha and Mary, that this sickness, that's the sickness of your brother Lazarus, is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And in connection with that, the words that Jesus speaks beside the tomb in verse 40 where he addresses Martha and says to her Did I not say to you that if you would believe you would see the glory of God? Now we began our meditation on this incident this morning and saw how Martha and Mary sent word to Christ telling him of their brother's sickness and telling him that he was already near to death. We saw too how Christ gave them that encouraging reply in verse 4 that the sickness is not unto death. In fact, it is to God's glory And not only to God's glory, but his own glory too, as the Son of God. Now, when the sisters got the message, I'm quite sure on the basis of that message, they expected the Lord Jesus to come and to heal their brother and to restore him to health. And um, to their great disappointment and to their spiritual confusion, think we could say too. Lazarus, of course, dies before Jesus comes. And we left both sisters in mourning, coming to Christ independently, Martha first and then Mary, and saying virtually identical things to the Lord. They both said, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. The fact that They both said the same thing and the fact that it was the first thing they both said proves to us that that must have been much on their minds and in their speech and in their meditation. They knew that had the Lord been there certainly their brother would not have died. That was definitely a statement of faith in Christ's power. It was also a statement of trust In Christ's goodness, even if it was also a statement of perplexity, wondering why he had delayed when he could have come. And it was especially perplexing for them in light of the message that Christ had sent them, saying that the sickness was not unto death, but that God would be glorified by it, and he himself would be glorified by it too. Now, if we would expect either of the sisters uh, to go a little deeper in what they said or to ask something more, we would expect Mary to be the one to do it for the reason I said this morning. She is always found at the feet of Christ whenever she appears in the Gospel, and she is always an enthusiastic student of God's word. I think it's probably fair to say that she might have been the only person who thoroughly understood that the Lord Jesus Christ himself would rise from the dead on the third day. She's conspicuous by her absence at the tomb when the rest of the women are going to anoint the body of the Lord Jesus. She's just not there. Because just a few days after this, she well preaches in her own way by action what she expected of the Lord when she anointed him with that expense of ointment from his head to his foot. The Lord Jesus said, She has done this in the light of my burial. She knows that she will not anoint me after my death, she is anointing me as precious before my death because He knows that Mary. Understands, So, we would expect Mary to be the one who asks the deeper questions in connection with all this. But, lo and behold, it is actually Martha who asks the questions. Now, in fairness, Mary doesn't actually have any time to ask the Lord anything that she may want to ask the Lord. John tells us specifically that when Martha comes in and says, The teacher is calling for you, She goes out secretly, but everyone noticed her going out. And they came to the conclusion that she was going to weep at the tomb, and they decided to follow her. The result was that Mary never got to speak to Christ on her own. She simply fell down and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And at that point, Jesus looks round. Already, there's a crowd of people gathered. And they are all weeping. So who knows really what Mary might have said. Who knows what she might have asked. So Christ from there asks to be led to the tomb. And on his way to the tomb we're told that he became troubled in his spirit. The Greek word just means to be violently agitated. And the result of that was twofold. First, he groans, we're told, and second, he weeps. We're told that he groans in verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. Again in verse 38, when he arrives at the tomb, we're told that he arrived at the tomb groaning in himself. And in between these two groanings, we're told in that simple verse 35, which is the shortest verse in the Bible, I'll say something about it a little later on, we're told that Jesus wept. So the trouble in his spirit, the deep agitation, came out in a groan groan. And it also came out in weeping or crying. Now, I don't think at all that these two things are the same. It's not the same emotion that Christ is expressing. Now, Christ had the full range of human emotion, being as he was, very man of very man, and very God of very God, genuinely man, genuinely God the full range of human emotion. But the groan expresses a different emotion from the tear. Let me take first his groaning. Now, although the English doesn't really convey it, the Greek language is quite emphatic in what it says, because this word used for groaning always indicates the presence of anger and displeasure it doesn't appear often in the New Testament but when it does that is its clear meaning and in other Greek literature outside of the New Testament that's always its meaning a sense of deep profound displeasure and even anger now we know that anger was certainly in the Lord's of Oceans. it still is and always will be it's not like ours sometimes misguided is directed and capricious, it's always righteous and holy. He's always right he's always angry for the right reason, in the right way and to the right degree. And here clearly there is some measure of anger in his spirit. And I think we can be quite sure what that is directed towards. It's directed towards the sin that's all around him, the unbelief that's all around him, and, of course, death itself. You've got to remember that this is the Prince of Life. He is life. He's the source of all life. He has life in himself, and he gives life to others. Death is opposite to him. Sin is opposite to him. Unbelief is opposite to him. And all these things are abounding here. You read of elsewhere in the scriptures that when the Lord saw the unbelief of the people, we're told that he was angered. He looked about himself being angry. So there is a similar thing here. He is groaning at the evil that is all around him. To him death is ugly. It's ugly to us too. At least if we're in our right minds, it's it's ugly. Or if we're honest with ourselves, it's ugly. Certainly we beautify it as much as we can. We beautify a body and we beautify a grave. And uh, people are increasingly wanting to do away with any kind of solemnity or any kind of, as they call it, morbidity in correction with a funeral service. Um, Just wanting to push death to the side. But the Lord acknowledges here its ugliness, so He groans deeply in His spirit with displeasure. But then again, in verse thirty-five, we're told He wept. Now, again, just a couple of things about this. First of all, these tears that Christ shed here are different from the tears shed by Mary, by Martha, and by everyone else. Now don't always like going into the Greek language for, for, for different reasons but sometimes you just have to because the word weeping appears so often in the passage but in connection with Jesus it's a different word and we can't ignore that You sometimes wish maybe that the, transl- the translators had maybe chosen another word, doesn't mean that they're wrong they're right of course, Jesus did weep but it is a different word when Mary and Martha wept we're told that they wept with a loud wailing noise. When the Jews who were with them wept were told too that they wept with a loud wailing noise. The words used... And by the way, Christ himself could weep like that too. Interestingly, when just a few days after this, he he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, just just as he was turning around the shoulder of the Mount of Olives, where the city just came into view. When he, when he was leaving Bethany. And people would sometimes, especially first-time visitors to Jerusalem, would often stop there at the feast and they would just take in the view. And many of them, of course, were singing, recognizing Christ on the back of the donkey as the Messiah, Hosanna to the King of the Jews. But but their cries were stopped by the Lord's own weeping, which which is conveyed to us in the Greek language by a word for weeping that carries the idea of wailing and sobbing, um, an extrovert form of crying, crying out loud and crying noticeably. It's at that point and in that way and in that spirit that he wept over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that stones the prophets. How often I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her chickens under her wings, but you would not These were wailings and strong cryings. So Christ could cry like that too. But interestingly, the word used for weeping here is very, very different. It just means to shed silent tears. The tears were just streaming down his face. And where did they come from? Well, I think the fact that it's mentioned distinct from his groaning in spirit means that they're from a different source altogether. I think it is just out of the deep sympathy of his heart with those who are suffering. This is the Lord who tells ourselves to weep with those who weep and to rejoice with those who rejoice. And the fact that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead doesn't mean that he cannot have a deep compassion with those who are missing him so much and so grieved at his loss. Um, The fact that we know our own brothers and sisters whom we lose if they are in Christ that they are going to glory doesn't change the fact that we weep for them just now. And neither should the knowledge that he is going to raise Lazarus from the dead take away the sense of sympathy that he feels for Two women particularly, who he loves uh, so much. And uh, these things remind us too that although he chose to stay at a distance, you'll remember in the morning, John tells us that he loved Martha and Mary and therefore he stayed two days where he was. Seems to us strange, certainly seems strange to Martha and Mary, but reminds us that these decisions themselves were not easy ones for the Lord to take. Were any of them easy? We're told that he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. That doesn't mean that he was ever disobedient. It simply means that he experienced obedience always in suffering. And it never seems to be otherwise. It's always difficult for him to do the right thing. Sometimes it's difficult for ourselves to do the right thing, but it always seemed to be difficult for him. But nonetheless he did it. He learned obedience. Always, it seems, in the crucible of suffering. Now, it's always good for us to know, friends, that we have a great high priest who is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. It's a wonderful statement, that. It's put in the negative in the Hebrews we do not have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities when you put it in the positive, we do have a high priest who is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. God may sometimes be remote in your thinking, and if you're not a a Christian here tonight, maybe that's how you view God as remote and austere and forbidding and definitely uninterested. Well, the wonderful thing is when you cry to God in faith, he is touched with the feeling of your infirmities. I told you more than once before that I, I remember an old minister I knew well and many of yourselves knew him too, the late Jack McLeod I remember him preaching once and saying that Christ has never lost that in his passage into glory sitting as old priest at the right hand of God, it's not that he's forgotten how to feel it's not that he ceases to be sympathetic there, it's not that he's moved beyond human emotion as though he doesn't feel these things anymore, this is the Jesus after all who stood beside God when Stephen, the first martyr, was being stoned. Christ is always seated at the right hand of God. How come he stands there? Well, you would say he stands there because we see him in the posture of a priest, and we see him interceding for Stephen. Yes, that's true. But even behind that, deeper than that, is the fact that he stands in sympathy and in compassion because what does he pray for except strength for Stephen to die a martyr's death to die strong in the Lord and to give a testimony in his death as faithful as the testimony that he gave in his life so he's not beyond being touched by Stephen's pain and by Stephen's prayers that's the Christ we have that's the Christ that you could have too however the world presents him or however he exists in your imagination, perhaps with a caricature that the devil has helped you to create. But that is the Christ we know. That is the Christ we're thankful for. That is the Christ that we appreciate having as our Lord and our Saviour. Jesus wept. I mentioned earlier that this is the shortest verse in the Bible. Some of you who are familiar with life... Where I came from most recently in Glasgow, will know that Jesus wept is a swear word. I have no idea how that happened at all. Many a time I've heard it. Passing school playgrounds, walking through the streets, somebody will say, Jesus wept. If something happens that's unusual, whatever. They say it so unthinkingly. The devil, you know, finds the best things to corrupt. When he corrupted ourselves, he did that. I mean, there was nothing more glorious than the creation of God. Taking all the worlds and the vast cosmos into consideration, nothing was more glorious than the man and the woman that was made in his own image and likeness. Well, the devil corrupted that. He'll corrupt what's best. And isn't it amazing that this short text that expresses the sympathy of Christ with a grieving heart is taken and used as a swear word by? Astonishing. Do people not know? Well, when they take the Lord's name in vain, do they not know anyway? But when they say Jesus wept, do they not know that either? But Jesus did weep. So he groans at sin, unbelief and death, and he weeps tears of sympathy. Now when he arrives at the tomb, he gives a command for the stone to be moved and Martha intervenes he says Lord it's the fourth day since he died and there's a smell please don't take the stone away from the tomb and Christ turns to her and says these immortal words of verse 40 did I not say to you that if you would believe you would see the glory of God? I think there are two questions arising from that. First of all, what exactly is Christ referring to when he says, did I not say to you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? What exactly did he say or when did he say this thing? The second question is, what does he mean by and connected with that, what does he expect her to understand from it? Did I not say to you, Martha, that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? First of all then, what is the Lord referring to? Or when did he say that to her? No, you could say that in a general sense that that was the thrust of his teaching. If you believe, you will see the glory of God. And that, of course, is true. It's always true. It's true to all of us. It's true to ourselves. The the degree to which we see the glory of God at work in our own life, in our family, in our congregation, or in the land, is directly related to our faith. We forget that. We think somehow it's got nothing to do with our faith. That the glory of God being seen in the land has nothing to do with the faith of his people. Perhaps we can collapse it into his sovereignty and Take some assurance out of that. But it is related to faith. According to your faith, Jesus said, so be it to you. And perhaps it's the case that we see little of the glory of God in our own lives, in what He's doing for us, or indeed in our family or in our congregation, because we don't believe. We don't believe. And it's astonishing sometimes how much unbelief can be connected to real faith. I mentioned that text in the morning, I believe, help my unbelief. We've probably all got a lot more unbelief than we care to admit. A lot more than we think we have. Would you maybe see more glory yourself if you really believed? So that's the general thrust of his teaching, all right. But when the Lord says, did I not say to you, Martha, that if you would believe you would see the glory of God you can't help but feel that he's referring to something a bit more specific than that. A time and an occasion where he encouraged her to believe and to see his glory. If you think about it like that, I don't think you need to look too far for the answer. In fact, you just go back to the message that Christ sent before he returned to Bethany. In verse 4 of the chapter, After they sent the message that Lazarus was sick and effectively died, when Jesus heard that he said now remember this is a word to the messengers which they are taking back to Martha and Mary this sickness is not unto death it's not going to end in death in other words, it's not about death rather it is for the glory of God That the Son of God, that is me, that I may be glorified through it. Now, that's full of glory, that verse. It's full of God's glory. It's full of the glory of the Son. And it's also a call to faith. Definitely. By sending that message, he's asking them to believe something something about Him and His Father, something about life, and something about glory. And then again, in verses 23 and 25. Jesus says to Martha in verse 23 that your brother will rise again. Martha says, I know he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Jesus comes back at her and says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever believes and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said, yes. Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. That's quite an amazing exchange. Your brother will rise again. You know, when Martha comes and says to Christ, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. She elaborates, or she adds something on. She says, Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Now we long to say, What do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? What is it that you're looking for there? What is it that you're expecting or what you're hoping for? And I think Christ tests it. He says to her, Your brother, he says, will rise again. Now if we expect Martha to be to be latching on to what's maybe going to happen, she obviously doesn't, because she says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And that's the belief of God's people anyway. It always has been the God the belief of God's people. Ever since the beginning, from the death of righteous Abel in the Garden of Eden, way, way outside the Garden of Eden, way, way back, it's always been the belief of God's people that the people of God shall rise again. That this astonishing interweaving of the fabric of the soul and the body will again be re-woven by God, that the body will be reconstituted according to its original DNA and it shall appear in its glorified state with God. That has always been the belief of God's people. And that's all that Martha says. Christ wants her to lay hold of more than that. He says, You believe that you will rise in the resurrection. I am the resurrection. He says. And what's more, I am the life. I am the resurrection and I am the life. Now, Christ had already told his people, about two resurrections. Can you just turn back for a moment in your Bibles to John chapter 5? It's on page 1644. He taught them about um, two resurrections of which he was the author. In fact, it's the, it's the purpose of Christ here in this teaching that people should honour him as they honour the Father. And in verse 24 sorry in verse 25 he introduces the first resurrection and this is a spiritual resurrection I'll say something about that after I've read the verse. Most assuredly Jesus says to them I say to you that the hour is coming and no is. Notice that. It's not exclusively in the future. This hour is actually present. What hour is it? The hour when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. That's the first resurrection. The first resurrection is the resurrection that every Christian in here has had. In other words... They have risen from spiritual death to spiritual life. You were once without hope and without God in the world. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And God awoke you. He woke you up by the power of his own Holy Spirit. He came into your heart. He enlightened your mind to understand the word of God and he changed your heart to receive it. The Christ who once repulsed you, is a Christ who now attracts you. And you just came to life. You lived in a way that you never lived before. New goals, new aspirations, new hopes, a new life, a new lifestyle, a new God. You weren't your own God anymore. You weren't living for yourself or to please yourself, but suddenly you were living for God. You recognised your Creator. And your Lord and your Saviour. You rose from spiritual death to spiritual life. And so there are people in here tonight who have experienced this first resurrection. That hour came with power in Jesus' day, and it still is. But then he goes on to describe a second resurrection in verse uh, 28. In verse 28. Do not marvel at this. For the hour is coming. Now notice he doesn't say and now is here. There's nothing present about this hour. This is in the future. Mm -hmm. The hour is coming in which all who are in the graves. Will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. And those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. That's the resurrection that happens at the end when the Lord returns a second time. And there is a vast and general resurrection of the good and the evil. Those who rise to blessedness, glory and heaven. Those who rise to curse, shame and hell. Two very, very different resurrections. But Christ is the author of them all. It is Christ who raises every soul. And it is Christ who raises every body. When I say to the soul, live, Jesus says, that soul lives. When I say to the body, rise, that body rises. So the life by which people live when they are born again is a life that streams from me, he says. And when every body rises... It's me that enlivens them, that enables them to rise again and to stand and to walk, whether for good or for ill. All flows from me. I am the resurrection and I am the life. Two things, of course, follow from that. First of all, as Jesus says, if you believe in me, death is not final. You may die, but you will live. You will rise. You have a life in you that shall never end. If you believe in me, in fact, he says, you will never die at all. Strangely, you have to take all these things together to get a full picture of what Christ means. The kind of life that I give you, he says, is a life that will actually never end. Even the act of physical death, he says, will not impact that life. Your soul will immediately go into the presence of God. It was alive on earth. It is more alive in heaven. Nothing in hell or upon the earth can separate you from the life that I have given you from myself. Christians live. Christ lives in them. They live in Christ. Christ lives in them. One thing we are, friends, as Christians is not dead. Not dead. But to be outside of Christ is to be dead. Without hope and without God now that really is what Christ meant by the promise that he originally sent to the two women which he wanted them to think on and to pray on that this this sickness is not unto death it is for the demonstration of God's glory and it is for the demonstration of my glory as the conqueror of death now of course he says to to Martha do you believe this now I don't know the extent to which Martha really understands that it's easy to take the view that she sidesteps it more or less by saying as she does in verse 27 yes Lord she says I believe that you are the Christ the son of God who is to come into the world Is that a way of just saying what she knows while not really grappling with what he actually said? Well, I think it would be easy to dismiss it like that. I wonder, in fact, if she is saying more. She says, yes, she says, I I have already seen your glory. I have seen your miracles. I have heard what you have had to say. I have seen your power in my life. I have seen your power in my sister's life. And though my brother is dead, I have seen your power in my brother's brother's life too. So if you tell me that you are the source of all life and you are able to make my brother rise, well, I believe it. Because what else can I expect from the Son of God who I believe you to be? With you, nothing is impossible. But when he asks to remove the stone, it seems that that's gone. And she says, by this time, he stinks. That's our faith. it's, it's, It's amazing how strong we can be and then just how we can waver pretty much soon afterwards. By this time, he stinks. And he says, Martha, Martha, believe, believe, and you will see my Glory. And I'm quite sure she understood that. And I'm quite sure Mary understood that. And they know fine well when this stone is moved, there'll be no stink, no stench, and they know that their brother will come forth alive. Jesus, of course, prays before the miracle is performed. He prayed silently, first of all, but then he gives thanks out loud. And he gives thanks out loud because he wants the people to hear him give thanks. Now, that's not praying for people. Uh, It would take a a stretch to kind of twist it like that. What he's doing is he's allowing his prayer to be audible for the benefit of those who are hearing it. He's not praying for them, but he wants them to hear it. The prayer is one of thanksgiving to God for the life that streams from himself and from himself as the Son, so that people should honour him as the son. Just as they honour the father. And he doesn't want any of the Jews to be able to say anymore. That it's by the prince of demons that he casts out demons. He doesn't want this power to be thought of as diabolical power. Or some kind of magic trick or anything like that. It's by the prince of demons that he casts out demons the Jews said. Well the father he says. You answer and you will answer and I know that you will answer. And of course he says Lazarus come forth. Now it's impossible in a way to overstate the significance of this miracle. John you'll remember organises his gospel around seven signs. The first was the turning of the water into wine in Cana. The last of them is this raising of Lazarus from the dead? You'll remember going back to the water into wine that these signs are all signposts. They are all pointing to who he is. And there is no sign really as great as this one. You could say, well, are you including in that things like stilling the storm, calming the wind and the sea? to the point where they turn from being boisterous to there being a flat calm at his command and will. Are you including that? Well, I am including that. What is it about this that makes this greater than that? I mean, you'd think that the power to effectively control the universe is greater than the power to do this. Ah, well, what makes this so different is the question of life. Life. Everything else is inanimate. It wouldn't cost the life of the Son of God to purify what was inanimate, but to take something that is sinful and ruined, and not just sinful and ruined, but here at the point of decay, because there was a stench. We're not to think that Lazarus' body was preserved from corruption in the tomb. I don't think you can say that. Simply because the Lord Jesus Christ himself was still to go to the tomb, and he was to be the one who was preserved from corruption. So the fact of the matter is that the normal process of decay that enters into the body at the point of death had entered into the body of Lazarus. And the point is here that he reverses that. As he can do. In other words, the whole of death is being overturned. And the glory of the Son of God that's being revealed here, the glory of God that's being revealed here, is the glory of the one who brought life And immortality to light through the gospel. Taking away decay and taking away death. No stench. Life. And that is pointing out the glory of who we're dealing with. No mere man. No mere prophet. God on earth. Reversing the work of the fall. And that, my friends, is an amazing thing, indeed. Now it's an astonishing sight to see what was effectively a mummified body. I mean, when they took the the stone away from the tomb, of course it is similar to the tomb in which our Lord was laid. As I mentioned in the morning, there's every indication that this was a wealthy family. And uh, the grave would have been similar to the one in which the Lord himself was laid, because you'll remember that the Lord was laid with the rich in his death so the stone moved away would have effectively left the entrance to a, a, a beautiful and ornamented cave and Lazarus would be lying deep in there uh, bound in spices and just wrapped around every part of him even his face it's like a mummified appearance and when the Lord shouts to Lazarus to come forth, I mean, it's astonishing after a very short while to see this, this figure just emerging from the tomb. I mean, what an astonishing sight to see. And again, you'd expect that everyone who saw such a sight would believe. But the amazing thing is, if if you read on into the passage... Um, We read in verse 45 right now, this is back in John 11 if, if you're back in the chapter that we're looking at. We do read in verse 45 that many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. You'll notice how understated the Bible is all the time. I mean it's not going into theatrics, it's not overstating things, it's not overdoing things. Just acknowledging that they believe. But but read on to verse 46. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we leave him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. The Romans will come and take away our place, that's our temple, our city and our nation. And in verse 53 we read that from that day on they plotted to put him to death. What can you say? You think a, a miracle would change your own heart. Well actually only a miracle will. That's a fact. <laughs> that, that miracle is when you call upon the name of God for salvation your heart is changed. You'd better believe it. But no other miracle will change your heart. If I was able to perform a miracle tonight, it would do nothing to actually change your heart. If the Lord appeared at the door there and then disappeared, wouldn't change your heart. You'd have a theory, you'd have a reason, you'd have an explanation. You would, actually. How do I know that? Because that's the way I was myself the only thing that will really change you is the Spirit of God convicting you of the truth of what I'm telling you right now. The truth of what the Bible is teaching you right now. If the Holy Spirit convicts you of the truth of that, so that you're convicted of your sin and the reality of heaven and hell and the suitability of Jesus Christ as a Saviour, that will change your heart. Absolutely nothing else will. So glorious as this rising from the dead is you know this second resurrection here is not as great as the first the greatest miracle in Lazarus life is not that he came out of the tomb but that he came out of a state of sin and death let's make no mistake about that like I said in the morning the Jews, the Jews have a tradition that Lazarus lived uh, 30 extra years after he was brought back to life we don't know if these traditions are true or not very often there's no reason to doubt them sometimes there is but if you were to go to him at, say, 90 years of age and say, Lazarus, what was the greatest event in your life? He would say, Oh, it's when I passed from death to life. And when the Lord came into my heart and changed me from being a sinner to being a Christian. What was the second year? I suppose he'd say, oh, it's the odds. I'm sure it's when the Lord brought me from the tomb. But there's no doubt what was the first. And that's the great change. That you need to come into your life too. You're dead in your spiritual tomb. And even tonight. Is the Lord saying to you. Come forth. What's your name? Put your own name in there. Come forth. And you're wrapped. Mummified. In your sins and in your death. But when that word comes to you. You'll just get up. And you'll come out. And you'll come to the Lord. Because he's calling you. You will. You'll get up from the dead and you'll go to the Lord because he is calling you. And let's just understand that our second resurrection absolutely depends on having a first one. If you don't rise from your death and trespasses and sins, your final resurrection will be to condemnation to eternal hell. If you do rise to life in your soul, your second resurrection will be to be with the Lord. There it is, life and death, what the gospel always presents, and it's your choice to make. Let us pray. O Lord, O God, in your great power, deliver us, we pray from our sin and our sloth, from our condemnation and our death. Deliver us by your glorious power, uniting us to the life of your Son. And truly, if Christ is in us and we are in him, then we will live forevermore. We know with the Apostle Paul that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God and indeed the life of God, which is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let's uh, close our worship. Um, singing again from God's word in Psalm 118. Mm-hmm. Lazarus, like Jairus' daughter, of course, experienced dying twice, but They can say in verse 17, Psalm 118 and verse 17, that I shall not die, but live, and shall the works of God discover. The Lord hath me just size sore, but not to death given over. Set ye open unto me the gates of righteousness. Who would think we could pass through them? But then will I enter into them, and I, the Lord, will bless. It's God's gate. This is the gate of God, and by it the just, can we say the justified, shall enter in. Thee will I praise, for thou me heardst and hast my safety been. That stone is made the head cornerstone, the foundation stone of the temple, a stone which the builders did despise, that's the Pharisees and the uh, builders of that so-called church. But this is the doing of the Lord. And it is wondrous in our eyes. May you all, friends, come to the point where you can sing this heartily as your own experience. Let's stand to sing 17 to 23. I shall not die.